good to be with you this evening, and as Brother Bill said, it's been a good day. It's been a good day because we've been able to be together, we've been able to encourage each other, remind each other, teach each other, and do the things of God. This is considered Super Sunday in the world of football. It's a big game on tonight, and you'll get home in plenty of time, I guarantee you that, and we'll uh, talk about that. But you know, for us, last Sunday was Super Sunday, and today is Super Sunday. If God gives us another Sunday, it will be a super Sunday. What makes it super is that we get to be in the presence of Jehovah. What makes it special is that we get to read the words of heaven. What makes it special is that we put our thoughts out of this world into a place God wants us to be. And so in that regard, it is super that we're here. And tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It's the day when... We get flowers and candy and cards to those we love. I was talking to Chloe the other day, and she talked about how busy she is at the flower shop. XM Radio has been advertising the 50 greatest love songs of all time. That'd be a hard list to make. But someone responded with songs that would never make the list. Here are some songs. These are real songs. I wouldn't take her to a dog fight because I'm afraid she'd win. I'm so miserable without you, it's just like having you around here. That's just, how can I miss you if you don't go away? But my favorite, and I've got to listen to the song, because this is a Mel Tillis song. How come your dog don't bite nobody but me? <laughs> That's just kind of interesting, isn't it? But when we think about the subject of love, that is a running theme throughout the Bible. John tells us in 1 John 4 that God is love. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all that you are, your, your heart, your mind, your soul. We're reminded of John 3, 16, God so loved the world. But we also know that love can be difficult and love can be hard. And we have expressions, sometimes we talk about tough love in the family. Paul would say in the book of 1 Corinthians 13, to serve without love is of no value whatsoever. In Revelation, we read about Ephesus who lost the first love. We got examples such as Jonah, the elder brother in Luke 15. And for a lot of us, it's the toxic co-worker, the nosy neighbor, the church member who interrogates us with thousands of questions, the judgmental family member, and it pushes our limits. And sometimes we look at this idea and we think love can be very, very hard. I like a little church sign that was said one time, God loves you and we're trying our best. And that kind of sums it up. So because of scheduling, the way things are, the next three Sundays, tonight and the next two Sunday nights, I'm preaching the nights. And it's been a while since I had a little series. So I'm going to do a little series and we're going to call it The Trouble with Love. And we're going to be looking at some things the Bible teaches about that. There are times we just don't feel like loving. There are times when we don't feel like forgiving. There's times when we don't want to turn the other cheek. There are times when extending the second chance just isn't in our book of things. And this love stuff can be very, very difficult for us. And so as we talk about these things and look at some things the Bible teaches, we hope that this series will be helpful for us as we consider some things. We begin, first of all, by understanding that everybody needs love. All of us do. We come into the world that way, needing to be fed, needing to be held, needing to be named, needing somebody to take care of us, to affirm us. Everybody needs love. The child that comes home and screams as he walks in the door, I'm home, 
is wanting to have some affirmation and love. The teenager has a hard time adjusting, feels awkward, is looking for love and acceptance. The husband and wife who sit across from a table in a restaurant just in silence is looking for love. The elderly person who sits by her telephone and goes to the mailbox three times in a day is looking for somebody to love her. And this includes the people we deem unlovable. This includes those that we may not like. Everybody needs love. Secondly, it's hard to understand God's love. And that's really true. When we think about how the Bible describes love, we often get the idea of romance and candlesticks and emotion. I like how some children describe love when they were asked, what does love mean? Mary, age six, says, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him all day long. Danny, age eight, says, love was when my mom makes coffee for my dad and she takes a sip before giving it to him just to make sure it's okay. Carl says, love is when a girl puts on smelly stuff and a boy puts on smelly stuff and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> That's how the world defines love, isn't it? But when we come to the Bible, God uses a different word. It's a word that's on top of the, the mountain. It's agape. And it means a choice. I don't love you because you've done something for me. I love you because I have chosen that. And this love is not a feeling, but it's a choice. And God loves us to the fullest. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more than what he does. And all through the Bible, God demonstrates his love, and he demonstrates it by actions. Romans 5, verse 8 says, while we were yet sinners, God sent Jesus. He demonstrated that. The cross, the thorns, the blood, that all demonstrates that God loves us. God loves the wayward. That's illustrated in the book of Hosea. God loves the outcast. That's why God included Matthew as one of the disciples. God invited himself to the home of Zacchaeus, a tax collector. The God who told a demon-possessed man, go and tell your people what the Lord has done for you. The forgiving of David, the forgiving of Saul of Tarsus. When God has love, it's not qualified with ifs. If you do this, I will love you. If you go to church, I will love you. He never says that. That's how we define love. God's love is sacrificial, and God's love is very generous. And those are some concepts that we see and appreciate as we think about this idea of love and how important that is. And so this evening, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. And let me say this at the very beginning. Because whenever I've mentioned this subject in classes or things, I've had brethren come up to me and say, I have no enemies. Well, maybe you are not the one who perpetuates it and causes it. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, the world doesn't like you. Jesus said they like the darkness rather than the light. And for you and I to walk through this life and say, you know what? I don't have an enemy in the world. Maybe I better look at my light. Maybe I'm not being an influence like I should be. As we're going to talk about this evening, as we go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I encourage you to take your Bible, turn to Luke, chapter 22. We'll be reading that in just a minute. Jesus had enemies. It wasn't because of Jesus. It was because of the enemies. And we need to see and appreciate that. So when we introduce this subject, loving our enemies, how do we love those who don't like us? How do we love those who want to hurt us? How do we love those who want to see us fail? 
And this evening where we're going to go is we're going to go to Luke chapter 22. The time when Peter cut off the ear of somebody. Wonderful story that demonstrates for us the love of God and loving our enemies. Luke 22, and let's begin with verse 47. Read the 53. I'm going to make some textual comments after that. Then there are some simple things you need to see in our story today. Luke 22, begin with verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them as they approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with a sword? And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come against me with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, did you not lay hands on me? But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now, two or three things I want you to notice. First of all, this story is found in all four Gospels, which is very special to us. Both here and both in Matthew, it tells us a great multitude came. John's account says a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort is about 600 soldiers. This past summer, I got to be in that garden. Jerusalem's up here on a hill, and then you got to go down the big valley and come back up a hill where the garden is. And so you imagine at night with torches, 600 soldiers, how loud that would have been as they're marching down this valley. Jesus had every chance to get out of there. But he didn't do that. He stayed. And there's a reason for that. This was a hostile crowd. They came to get Jesus. And that's the very element of an enemy. Out to get you. Out to sabotage the work you do. Out to ruin your name. Out to make you look bad, the enemy comes looking for you. Very similar to what we read in John chapter 10 when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. The thief, he says, comes to kill, destroy, and to steal. That's what we find taking place here. Now, in John's account and in other accounts, especially Matthew's account, we're told who swings a sword, and that is Peter. We'll talk about that in just a moment. John tells us the name of this high priest's servant. His name was Malchus, that got his ear cut off. And that's interesting that his name is given to us. It's like a footnote. I read a lot of technical stuff. And when I'm reading technical stuff and there's a footnote, I go down and rigor, read the reference. Where did you get this idea? Where did this information come from? And in the Bible way, given a name is much like a footnote. After the story got told a few times, after it got written and circulated, you could see people coming around. Your name is Malchus. Yes, it is. Were you the guy? Yes, I was the guy. Looking at your ear, you see. And maybe, just maybe, after the story is told, he quit being a servant of the high priest and became a servant of Jesus. Let's talk about some of that in just a minute. And so the text tells us that Peter drew his sword and cut off his right ear. Now, you might think on the surface, man, Peter's good with a sword, man. He's a swordsman. No, that's not what happened. He's a fisherman. I believe he tried to kill the guy, and the guy just moved his head, and all he got was the ear. 
And Jesus tells him immediately to stop. And when you go to Matthew chapter 26, there's three things that come out there real quickly. Number one, Jesus says, I don't need your help. What he says is, I can call legions of angels. Here we got a Roman cohort. We got 600 Roman soldiers and temple guards. And among us, we got two swords. This is a losing battle here. We're not going to win this battle. I don't need you. I can call an angel. One angel in the Old Testament killed 186,000 people. Jesus says, I can bring down legions of angels. I don't need your help, Peter. Secondly, what he tells us, again from the Matthew account, Matthew 26 and verse 54, this is the will of God. I am to be arrested. I am to go to the cross. I am to die for your sins. This is the story of the Bible. It has to happen this way. We're not going to get in the battle here and fight and I'm going to escape. That's not the plan of God. It has to be this way. And then the third thing he tells them is you're going to die. Matthew's guy says if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Here a fisherman with a sword and a Roman soldier in his guard who's a professional soldier with a sword. Who's going to win? Peter doesn't have a chance. So the soldiers were merely doing their job. Peter fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapon and for the wrong reason. And here right before the cross, Jesus does his last miracle. He heals the ear of this high priest servant. And three things come out of that real quickly. Number one, it diffused a tense situation. Jesus did not condone what Peter was doing. Peter was doing something that was right. The Lord would say, let's get all their ears off. He didn't do that. He was not condoning. This easily, easily could have been a very bad situation. Secondly, it showed that Jesus was not the enemy. I'm not resisting arrest here. I'm not fleeing from this. And I'm going to put this man's ear back on. One has to wonder what Malchus felt like. I mean, just a second, his ear's on the ground, blood's going everywhere. And Jesus comes up and heals it. Now, once you know, that didn't stop the soldiers. The soldiers didn't say, okay, what are we doing? Let's go home. No, they still took Jesus. He still was scourged. He still was driven nails in his hand. He still had to die. But you wonder, as Malchus is seeing all this, what are we doing here? This is not a bad man. This is a good man. He healed me instantly. And also this demonstrated compassion. Love is always wrapped around in action. As Paul described love in 1 Corinthians 13, not a section written for Weddings, but a section written for brethren who are not getting along with each other. He describes how love is patient and kind and going through the characteristics of how love is to be. Multiple times in the book of John and particularly the book of 1 John, we are told to love one another. It's demonstrated by our actions. Now, our enemy may not be in a foreign land. Our enemy may not be on the other side of the planet. Our enemy may not be on the other side of the city. Our enemy could be in this very room. Someone I avoid talking to. Someone that asked me to their house, I'd immediately say, no, I'm not coming. Someone I've not extended fellowship to, even though God wants me to. You see, when we think about our enemy, it can be right among us. 
And what the Lord tells us to do is to love our enemies. Got Matthew chapter 5, let's look at verse 43. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Here as we're in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet their, your brothers only, what do, you, what, does that, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect. Complete would be the word. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Not only did Jesus give this command, we are to love our enemies, but what we're seeing here in this garden scene is that Jesus Christ is demonstrating this. He's shown this love that we should have. Now, what I want us to look at is three reasons, three ways we can love our enemies. First thing, we must be careful who and how we defend. You see, Peter had good intentions, but he made the situation worse. If Jesus hadn't calmed things down real quickly, all the apostles could have been killed right then, right there. It could have been just a disaster. Good intentions are not enough. And so what we see and appreciate is that zeal without boundaries leads to violence and unkind acts. And zeal without boundaries conceals the love that we are to show. Don't ever use wrong, don't ever become wrong to defeat wrong. And that's what we need to see. In the book of Philippians in chapter 1, let's grab this verse real quickly. In Philippians chapter 1, we see that the apostle Paul said that he was set for the defense of the gospel. Philippians 1 verse 7, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of the grace with me. But do you notice what Paul never did? Paul went to some cities where there are so many idols. You walk up and down the main road, idol after idol after idol, even idols to the unknown God in case we forgot one. You never see the Apostle Paul flipping a rope up around and pulling them down. That's wrong. That's wrong. You don't see him do that, do you? Paul never became wrong to fight wrong. You never find Paul attacking someone's character. You never find Paul doing things that just is not right. You see, we must be careful who and how we defend. Got your Bible now? Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. This will carry over to the next point as well. Romans chapter 12. Let's begin at verse 19. Romans 12, verse 19. Verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never, see that? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The power is in the gospel. So we don't have to use psychological tricks. We don't have to use intimidation. We don't have to purposely misquote somebody to get what we think is right. So how do I deal with my enemy? i got to be careful 
who and how I defend. Number two, we must help those who hurt us. Let's go back to Romans 12 now. Look at verse 20. That's what love does. Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, pause there. Society would say, let him starve. He's my enemy. If he's thirsty, let him just die of thirst. He's my enemy. But that's not what the passage says. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If there's an ear on the ground, put it back on. That's what Jesus did. How do I love my enemy? By helping those who hurt me. Now, I want you to notice the end of verse 20. I think for years we've just totally missed this passage. Because at the end of verse 20, after he says, feed him if he's hungry, give him a drink if he's thirsty, it says, for in so doing you'll heap burning coals upon his head. And I think sometimes we say that's just heaven's way of getting vengeance. I'm going to be so nice, I'll just get you. No, that's the wrong spirit. That's the wrong attitude. When someone has hurt you, you have four options. Option number one is to hurt them more, and that's vindictive. Option number two is treat them the same way, that's revenge. Option three is to ignore it, that's disdain. Option four is you can love him and serve him, and that's Christ's way. Benjamin Franklin said, doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenge makes you equal to your enemy. Forgiving him sets you above that. And so returning good for evil stirs his conscience. It may bring him to repentance. Barclay said it this way. He says, vengeance may break his spirit, but kindness will break his heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what the passage in Romans is about. It's not about I'm going to have the final word. I'm going to have the final say. Here it is. I'm doing all this goodness just to get even with you. I'm doing this to help you. Help them see goodness. Help them see the Lord. Now, I don't know, and the text doesn't tell us, if Malchus came with a sword. We know the soldiers had swords. And Jesus says, you come with swords and clubs. But I, my, in my mind, I'd like to think if Malchus had a sword, and then his ear was cut off, and he put it on, and was still leading Jesus away, I tend to think he might have just dropped the sword and walked this way. Unbelievable what just happened. Unbelievable how he changed my life. Unbelievable all the things that came about from that. Now, as we said earlier, we noticed that the healing of the ear didn't stop Jesus from being taken. The healing of the ear didn't stop the scourging, being nailed to the cross. You do something kind to your enemy, your enemy may still be your enemy. They may not stop trying to hurt you. They may continue to ignore your kindness. They may still be hard against you. But this is how God wants us to show this. This is the way God demonstrates this. You've seen that Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast. That's the concept there of this beast who seems to be selfish and mean, but things change. And as Ketcherson once said, a thing must be loved before it becomes lovable. And then the third thing that we see here in this passage is love does the unbelievable. It's unbelievable that these people who are going to arrest Jesus, take him away, mistreat him, spit on him, put nails in his hand, he still heals one of them. Because that's what love does. Love does the unbelievable. 
In the book of 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul was talking about the definition of love here, he would say in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. The ESV says it this way, it is not resentful. The NIV says it this way, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's what love does. Stories told of Clara Barton, who in, early in her life was really doing a lot to push uh, the nursing career and women into the working force. And in that time, a lot of people didn't appreciate that. And she was going to a banquet where an editor was who had just really raked her over the coals for what she was doing. And a friend said to her, you know, this editor is going to be here, and he was very harsh in the paper about you. And Claire Barton says, I distinctly remember forgetting that. That's what we do. How do I love my enemy? I don't keep score anymore. I don't tell others what he did to me. I don't keep the things going. I respond and do that. It's interesting, outside the Gospels, we don't hear about this story anymore. We don't hear Peter talking about cutting off this guy's ear anymore. It's over, it's gone, it's forgiven, and that's the way it should be. But what's interesting, the blood that was shed in that garden didn't do anything for you. But it was the blood that was shed in Jerusalem and on that cross that gave you the hope of all things. And so as we continue our series, we're going to be talking about the concept here of the trouble with love. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the tough choices love has to make. But loving your enemy, something God wants us to do so much. Ken Geyer is a writer of some devotional books. It's probably my favorite devotional books. And at the end of all his sections, he writes out a little prayer. And I'm not one who really likes reading other people's prayer. I just, I don't get much out of it. But he wrote about this passage here in Luke 22, about the cutting off of Malchus's ear and what Jesus did. And I want to read you this prayer that King Gaia wrote in this section here. He says, Dearest Lord Jesus, how courageous you faced the hour of your betrayal, how you gave even when you were being taken away to death. To your father, you gave obedience. To your disciples, you gave a plea for their escape. To your betrayer, you gave a kind word. To your enemy, you gave healing. To your captors, you gave your own life. Grant me the grace to confront life the way that you did in that olive garden on that night of your betrayal. When someone betrays me, grant me such a forgiving heart that I would offer a kind word in exchange for a deceitful kiss. When danger surrounds me, Grant me such faithfulness for my friends that I would think of their welfare before my own. When an army of opposition mounts against me, grant me the courage to stand alone. Thank you, Lord, that something as small as a servant's ear was not overlooked on your way to redeeming the world. Thank you for all the lessons that small acts of kindness teaches. I pray for the Malchuses in my life, those who have aligned themselves with my opposition, Especially I pray for anyone who has been hurt by a sharp word or a deed wielded by a friend in my defense. Help me to show kindness to that person, even if it is a very small act of kindness. And in your powerful name, I pray that I would be used to show kindness to other people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, 
for all you've shown me of your glory. From the glory you revealed at the wedding in Cana to the glory you revealed in the garden of Gethsemane. Open my eyes that I may see more. Open my heart that I may bring to me to my knees and worship a truly, truly incredible Savior. Loving your enemy. This thing called love is tough sometimes. But that's what God calls us to be. Not to just do what everyone else is doing around us. Not to do what everyone is doing on Facebook. But to do what Jesus would do. And I dare say, and I'm thankful, I was not there in that garden and I was in the shoes of Jesus. Had that ear fallen to the ground, I might just stepped on it and say, you get that. But he didn't do that. And how easy it is for us when we are hurt only to think of ourselves and to think of our hurt rather than the one hurting that he really has a greater issue. He really has a greater pain and that he needs Jesus. So that's our thoughts for this evening. I hope it gives you some things to kind of chew on and consider as we think about our little journey we're going to do about love. If you're here this evening and we can help you in any way, these are not easy lessons. It's real easy to stand where I'm standing and talk about you need to love your enemies. Then you go to work tomorrow or you walk down that hallway of the school and you think, okay, there they are. They're in my face. And to understand what Jesus did alone in that garden was what you and I need to do and to walk with him. If we can be of any help to you, won't you come as we stand and as we sing. Jesus alone.